Welcome to the London School of Economics for this online event. My name is Steve Pischke. I'm a professor at the school and the head of the economics department. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Professor Philippe Aguillon to this online lecture. Professor Aguillon is, uh, is a professor at the Collège de France and at the London School of Economics. He was previously a professor at Harvard University. Philippe is uh, one of the pioneers of the new economic growth theory that started in the 1980s and 90s. And he's pretty much spent most of his career since studying the determinants of economic growth and prosperity. So for those of you who use Twitter in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE COVID-19. This online event will be recorded, and if there are no technical difficulties, it will hopefully be available as a podcast afterwards. As usual, there will be a chance for you to ask questions uh, to the speaker after the lecture. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. You can submit the questions there, and I will then post them to Philippe, as many of the questions as we have time for. Um, if you can, please let us know your name and your affiliation. We particularly like to hear from our students and alumni, so please let us know. Philippe will talk about his new co-authored book, The Power of Creative Destruction, and I'm very much delighted to turn it over to him. Please, Philippe, take it away. Thank you very much, uh, Steve. It's uh, been a great pleasure to be uh, your colleague uh, since uh, 2015 when I came back from Harvard. And, uh, and thanks so much for organizing this uh, event. Um, so let me share screen. Voilà. And uh, now I go to slideshow. Voilà. And now I can start. Voilà. So, uh, so this book, in fact, came from uh, five years of lectures at Collège de France. So Collège de France is a strange, it's a very particular institution. Uh, uh, you, you have to make accessible to the public at large research, frontier research. So here it was frontier research on innovation and growth. And, uh, uh, and so what that is, and every year you have to teach a new course. So if this is five years of teaching at Collège de France, where each year you have to do something new and make advanced material accessible to the public at large. So uh, Céline Antonin and Simon Bunel uh, helped me a lot. Without them, uh, I would never have turned these notes into a book. Uh, uh, Céline is at uh, Observatoire Français de la Conjoncture Économique and at Collège. Simon is at INSEE, the, the French Statistical Institute, Banque de France and Collège with me. And uh, uh, and we uh, we have that we produce this book. So uh, creative destruction. The term uh, is attributed to Joseph Schumpeter, whom you see here, and uh, it refers to the process whereby uh, all new innovations displace uh, old technologies. Okay. So the idea is that new innovations make old technologies become obsolete. The new destroys the old, uh, um, and uh, and so. Uh, 
Um, then from the, that idea, what we, I tried to do over the past 30 years, I started with Peter Howitt, but now there, there is a whole, you know, uh, wave of, uh, uh, so it's a big part now of, of growth economics, uh, Schupeter and growth uh, uh, theory and Schupeter and growth economics. So the basic ideas driving what we call the Schupeterian paradigm uh, uh, is that long-run growth is driven by cumulative process of innovation. The second uh, is that innovations do not come from heaven. They result from entrepreneurial activities motivated by the prospect of innovation rents. And the third idea is creative destruction, that new innovations displace old technologies. So, uh, uh, and, and, and then, you know, we, we did the first model with Peter Howitt in, uh, it was published in 1992 in Econometrica, but we did it in 1987. Uh, and then there was a whole wave of models building on what we had done. And, and, uh, and these models shed light on several aspects of growth and development. And in, what's interesting is that uh, uh, the rich micro data have been developed to confront the predictions of these models and show how these models are different from other growth theories, non-Schupeterian growth theories. Okay, and, uh, and, and, and that's what has been the past 33 years now, uh, 34 years uh, of uh, Schupeter and growth economics initiated by our work in 1987. So uh, uh, you see at the heart of the Schupeter and growth theory, there is a contradiction because on the one hand, innovators are motivated by the prospects of monopoly rents, but those rents can be used ex post to prevent subsequent innovations and block new entry because if I am yesterday's innovator, I'm worried that my technology will be made obsolete by subsequent innovators. So I'm very tempted to use my rents to block entry. And the whole issue is how you regulate capitalism is in order that at the same time you reward innovators with the rents, but you, you make sure that at least at Mazda you can, that they will not be used to, to block future entry. In fact, Schupeter himself was deeply pessimistic about the future of capitalism. His view was that new, first, the innovators would turn into conglomerates and that these conglomerates would block subsequent innovations and therefore capitalism would not, uh, would not be able to survive. I mean, the, it would not ensure long-term sustained growth. But this book is about why Schumpeter's pessimism was excessive. And in fact, what we try to do is to show why his pessimist the prophecy did not come true so far, and uh, how you can avert his pessimism. We replace Schumpeter pessimism by what we call an optimism of the will or a fighting optimism. And I will, be, I will get back to that uh, in the book repeatedly when I describe the book, okay? Why we can overcome this, uh, uh, you know, this uh, malediction of capitalism, uh, this contradiction that, uh, that made Schumpeter believe that it will not work out, that the, the capitalist system was doomed. And we believe it's not doomed, but it has to be fixed. Okay, so first, I mean, let me tell you that creative destruction, of course, is not just a pure concept, it's real. So for example, one way you can measure creative destruction is by the flow of new innovations, which you can capture partly by the flow of new patents. So here is a picture due to Axidit, Grigsby, and Nicholas uh, uh, that shows the relationship between the average yearly flow of patents between 1900 and 2000 across US states and the annual average growth of GDP per capita in those US states between 1900 and 2000. So uh, here are the various states and you see a positive correlation, states that on average, 
five times more, they grow, they have a higher growth of GDP per capita. So, uh, and in fact, they show in, that, in their paper that it's causal relationship, it's not just a correlation, uh, they instrument for uh, the flow of patents using military uh, patents in particular, uh, and, uh, uh, and they show that this is causal. So one measure is the flow of new patents and that's correlated with GDP growth per capita. Uh, another way to capture creative destruction is to look at the life cycle of firms. So for example, we know that the, here is the growth rate of employment. We see that firms, when they are very young, they keep increasing employment, they grow. And at some moment, the growth rate of employment goes to zero. That means the firm size stabilizes. So that's an important aspect about the firm, firm's life that people like Walti Wanger, Jarmin Miranda, and others have looked into uh, actually again, very much about the life cycle of firms. Uh, another thing which is important is the, is the relationship between the age of the firm and the exit rate. Uh, young firms tend to exit much more than uh, uh, older firms. So that's something you want to understand. Also, small firms tend to exit much more than older firms. There, the name of Pete Clino and Shang Tai Sei are uh, unavoidable names uh, who look at that. Okay, so those are other ways to, create, to, to capture creative destruction. And uh, uh, the way that we like to capture creative destruction is the, is the job turnover, job creation for job destruction, or uh, firm churning, firm destruction and firm creation. And again, like for the flow of new patent, it's positively, whether you do it cross-country or cross-US states, there is a positive correlation between this measure of creative destruction, which is job destruction, job creation, or firm churning, and the uh, growth of GDP per capita. Uh, uh, both the, the two are very much places where you have higher growth of GDP per capita are places where you have higher rate of turnover, job turnover, or firm turnover. Okay, so just to know. So what this book does is to learn to use the lens of creative destruction and of the paradigm that I outlaid above to do three things. First thing, we revisit some main enigmas in economic theory. The second is that we question some common wisdoms which we think are misplaced, which should be corrected for policymakers. So there are some policy prescriptions which are, we believe are, are wrong policy prescriptions. Uh, um, and the third thing is to, we try to rethink the future of capitalism, particularly post-COVID. So let me go into each of those in turn. So some historical enigma. And each time we will see that it's again the contradiction between giving runs to innovators and innovators using those runs to prevent future innovation. This comes back again and again. So industrial takeoff. Industrial takeoff, uh, what you see is that you see the, that uh, uh, you see the, here is the Madison data. Essentially, you have episodes of growth uh, in, you know, here and there of uh, human history, but the, the true takeoff of growth, the durable takeoff was in 1820 in England, then went, uh, was in France later, and then the US and, and et cetera. And it really happened then. And why did it happen? And in fact, the most plausible explanation is that you needed three things for that to happen. First, you needed to have the possibility of build upon giant shoulders. You needed to build upon previous innovators. So it was very important to have openness. Printing, post, uh, postage, uh, encyclopedia, which codifies knowledge, uh, freedom in universities, all that was very important to have this cumulative process of innovation. That's what Joe Mokir uh, shows very well, okay? 
Uh, what Joe Mokir also shows is the importance of property right protection. If you had not you had the, the glorious revolution in England uh, uh, or, or the later on, uh, subsequently the French Revolution, you would not have property right protection of a kind that would uh, make it possible really to innovate durably. Okay, so that's the second. And the third one is the fact is competition across European countries. In fact, you know, China could have been a place where the Industrial Revolution occurs because the Chinese were very good at inventions. They had invented the compass. They had invented the wheel. They had made other inventions, very important. It could have been the place, but the problem is that in China, whenever you had an inventor, the emperor would try to make sure that he does not become too powerful because the emperor was afraid of losing power. So you would, uh, 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 you see the incumbency there would be very strong to prevent those inventors from turning the invention into something big. And uh, whereas in Europe, you see, you have competition between European countries. If you uh, persecute an inventor in France, he could always go to England or to Switzerland or somewhere else. And that competition played a very important role. That's again, Mokir telling you. But you see, what's very interesting is the reason why you have in Europe in 1920 and not in China uh, in the Middle Age is very much mapping this growth paradigm. You needed uh, conditions for cumulative innovation uh, accumulation. You needed property right protection. And you needed to make sure that creative destruction goes on and the competition between European countries was a way whereby creative destruction could go, could go on. And that's the... Uh, 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 that's the uh, that's what, you know, the enigma of takeoff. Another enigma is the enigma of the technological waves and their effects of employment. Uh, here are the waves. So, for example, you can see the TFP growth uh, in the US. It's this dotted line. So you had a big wave there, which was the steam engine. Then you have the electricity, and then you have the IT here. By the way, the electricity is delayed in Europe and Japan, and, uh, and so is the IT wave, OK? And so there, there are various enigmas. First, why is there a delay between the invention of the steam engine and the, the fact that the steam engine gave rise to a wave in Europe? Uh, same with electricity. Why is there a lag between the invention of electricity and, uh, uh, you know, the, by, between the bulb and the, the electricity revolution? And the fact is that these delays reflect partly resistance from incumbent practices. Long after the steam engine revolution, firms remained powered by water wheels and organized along around a line shaft. It took the electricity revolution and Henry Ford to replace the line shaft by the assembly line. So here you, you see again the resistance of incumbents to, to doing things in, in a new way. Uh, also, it's very interesting, the diffusion, you had the wave of electricity in the US, delay in Japan and Europe, partly the war, but partly also institutional rigidities explain, and same for IT, institutional rigidities explain the delay in the diffusion. But there is another thing with the wave, is that each time there was a revolution, people thought it would lead to mass unemployment. When you had the steam engine revolution, there was the Luddites movement in, the, in England, uh, when you had the electricity revolution, the case for so mass unemployment. Uh, now with the uh, AI, artificial intelligence, people believe that there will be mass unemployment because robots will replace manpower. But never it happened before. You never saw the mass unemployment. Uh, you didn't see it with the steam engine. You didn't see it with electricity. And we argue that you won't see it with the robots either. Okay, so why is that? And that we try to, we, we deal with that in the chapter three of the book. Another enigma is secular stagnation. 
you see, the, if you look at the average tier, uh, yearly TFP growth, it went, it went up between 95, 2005, but went down a lot since then. Why did it go down? You have the IT and AI revolution. That should boost growth. How come you have a growth decline? And partly, very interestingly, the up and down is very much in IT producing and IT using sector. And uh, uh, there, you see, uh, uh, is the story that I told Zuckerberg. I met Zuckerberg. I had a chance two years ago in Paris. And I told, Zuckerberg, I told Zuckerberg, you know, you are, the problem is that you are stalling growth in the US because, you know, you, with the IT revolution, you could expand a lot. That was good for the growth. That's where the, with the IT revolution, firms like, you know, Facebook, you know, the, the big uh, IT, uh, tech firms uh, could, could do many more things. So they could expand horizontally a lot. And that period of expansion was a period of increasing growth because they were very productive firms. Uh, uh, but the problem is that once they expanded, they inhibited the innovation by other firms. So the superstar firms, what they did with the IT revolution, they expanded through many sectors of the economy. But the problem is then they inhibited uh, uh, innovation. And, and they, the problem is that, you see, it's again the innovators of yesterday that stifle today's innovation. And one thing that didn't work quite well in the US is competition policy, because nothing was done to prevent those firms from doing merger and acquisition as they see fit. They could do unboundedly on, merger and acquisition, even if that would stifle subsequent entry and innovation. So uh, as my colleague Richard Gilbert from Berkeley says, you need to adapt competition policy to the digital era. When you look at whether or not you should have merger and acquisition, you should take into account the effect it has on subsequent innovation and entry. Okay, so again, there you see the same problem. Innovators of yesterday, they can stifle innovation. How you, how you overcome that problem? Middle income traps, middle income traps. So that's the Argentina. If you look at GDP per capita of Argentina, it was more or less a constant fraction of the GDP per capita of the US between 1870 and 1930. But then it went down. So Argentina was growing quite well until 1930. Then Argentina started doing not so well. And, uh, uh, but what you see for Argentina, you see for countries that perform better, like Korea. Korea was, until the late 80s, very high growth. And then uh, growth slowed down. Uh, Japan is not a middle income. It's a high income country. But growth, very high growth until the late 80s. Since the late 80s, Japan has very low growth. Why is that? Is because you see in those countries when they were catching up with more advanced countries, uh, during this catching up period, it was a catching up growth. Uh, uh, they had uh, some firms became very big. You had conglomerates that emerged through uh, this uh, during this catching up period. Uh, in in Korea, you call that the chobols. In in Japan, you call these conglomerates keretsus. They became very big. And what they did is not only they prevented entry, but they prevented the necessary move from institutions that are good for catching up to institutions that are good for frontier innovation. For frontier innovation, you need more entry. You need more competition. You need more market labor market flexibility. You need many more things that, you know, of course, these conglomerates don't want to have. And they were sufficiently powerful not only to prevent entry, but to, uh, to, to in fact, put pressure on governments to not move to institutions that would be favorable to frontier innovations. And uh, uh, again, you see the, the same contradiction. Yesterday's innovator become, uh, where uh, an engine of growth yesterday, they become uh, a barrier to growth today, okay? Source uh, dynamics of inequality. Uh, 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 so the important, so here, of course, we all know these graphs from Piketty, Saez, Atkinson. We know the share of income of the top 1% in the US 
on the top with 0.1% income earner went up a lot since the 1980s. The question is why? And does it have anything to do with innovation? And interestingly, I, I, here I have again the share of income of the top 1% in the dark blue, but the light blue or gray is the, uh, the flow of patents in the US, which also went up during that period. In fact, what we show is that innovation is a source of top income. Why? Because if you innovate, I remember you have rents from innovation. So innovation is a source of top income, but, uh, 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 but it's an interesting source because you see here it's based on work. And so that's chapter five of the book, but it reports work that I've done with uh, Richard Blondel, Fouquet Sigit, uh, Antonin Bergeau, and David Demus, where we look at the effect of innovation intensity in the US. We do that cross-state panel US, uh, and we instrument for uh, innovation intensity. So we look at the causal effect of innovation on the share of income of the top 1% income earners. We see that indeed there is a positive uh, effect of innovation intensity. So the same state of the US could be in different points on that horizontal line depending on the year, okay? And we look at uh, the effect of innovation intensity measured by patenting uh, or by uh, well-cited patents uh, uh, on top income inequality. We see that there is clearly an effect of uh, uh, innovation on top income inequality. But on the other hand, if you look at the effect of innovation on the Gini, which is a more global measure of inequality, which is a more me global measure of how far you are from perfect equality, you see no effect. So it's very interesting. Innovation is a source of top income inequality, but, it's, uh, 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 but it does not increase global inequality. Why it does not increase inequality? Because it increases social mobility. I will get back to that. But uh, uh, in fact, what I, can I will tell later is that in fact, innovation uh, uh, increases social mobility and it increases social mobility because of creative destruction. New innovators replace old technologies and that's a force of social mobility. I will argue below that also more innovative firms create more new good jobs, jobs that give motor promotion to even low educated workers. They give them steeper wage profiles to uh, low educated when you are more innovative firm because you need the, even the low educated to be complementary to the other assets of the firm. And uh, you don't want them to screw up. You want them to really be co uh, complementary to the other assets of the firm. So innovation is true, increases top income inequality, but it also increases social mobility. And that's why overall, it does not affect uh, global inequality. In contrast, lobbying, lobbying is a very different story. Lobbying, increases top income, but lobbying also uh, reduces social mobility, and therefore lobbying increases also the, the global inequality. So that's what I say, Steve Jobs is not the same as Carlos Slim. Uh, uh, you, you, you have uh, so high income, some of them are innovators, some of them are high income because they have done lobbying and they put entry barriers, and you don't deal with the two the same way. And that's something we, a uh, big theme of the, uh, and of course there is the issue should we worry about the top 1%? Yes, for the Schumpeterian reason. You should worry about that because they could use their income to prevent subsequent entry. But the way to deal with that is not only taxation policy, it's competition policy. It's to make sure that the top one income person don't put entry barriers. So you have to make sure you have effective competition policy. I go back to my previous point about the uh, high-tech firms and making sure that competition is there. And another way also, uh, which, you know, is make sure that they don't buy out the political system. So you, uh, I'm not against having rich people, but make sure that the rich don't prevent competition and don't buy out the political system. 
the, the last one is pulp dependence in clean versus dirty innovation. We, in fact, there is an interesting fact that uh, firms that innovated in dirty technologies in the past keep innovating in dirty technology uh, today because there is something which called past dependence. And the question is, you know, so we provide evidence of this path dependence. It's again incumbents. The incumbents are the ones. The incumbents that did a lot of innovations in dirty technology in the past, they, are, they tend to do clean technologies today. What can you do against that? What can be the role of the state and the role of the state? But, you know, you can redirect technical change towards clean technologies with carbon tax, with industrial policy, but also the civil society can play a big role there. And I will talk about the role of civil society later to redirect innovation of incumbents towards cleaner technologies. So those are the historical enigma. Now I move to the common wisdoms. So the first common wisdom is that you should have uh, taxing robots to protect employment. Uh, 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 there was a candidate in the French election in 2017, uh, Benoit Hamon, who proposed uh, uh, that you should tax robots to protect employment. I, we think it's a very bad idea. And we explain that in chapter three of the book. So uh, that's uh, built on work that I've done with Xavier Jaravel, with our colleague at the LSE, and with uh, Simon Bunel and Céline Antonin. So Simon Bunel and Céline Antonin are my co-authors on this book. And with Xavier Jaravel, we looked, uh, we did plant level and firm level analysis of the effect of automation on employment. And you see that when firms automate, the, uh, it creates employment. There is a 0.2 elasticity on impact at the time where you increase automation, and the 0.4 elasticity after 10 years. So firms that automate, in fact, they don't destroy employment. They create employment. And now you would say, but how come you replace uh, manpower by robots or by uh, machines? How come you create employment? And the reason is that by those firms become more productive. Because they become more productive, they can expand their market. And therefore, there is a bigger demand for their products. And they have a bigger demand for employment. And you see, that's very clear here. That's the export price. The export price of firms that automate goes down after they automate, you see? So they are able to offer a better, you know, more attractive price, and therefore they are, uh, they are able to expand their export markets, and therefore they can hire, uh, they can produce more, and therefore they ask more labor. And that effect, which I call the competitiveness effect or productivity effect, more than counteracts, uh, is more important than uh, the direct substitution effect of machines uh, for uh, machines replacing uh, manpower, okay? Here is, very, is the exit probability. You see that when you, when you automate, you reduce the probability of exiting. So that uh, other way to say it, if you don't automate, you, uh, you are more likely to exit and to, and to destroy employment. But the direct effect of uh, uh, automation is to create employment. The, 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 the destruction of, of jobs is by firms that are, don't automate. You see, that's... Uh, you know, because there is business stealing. Those who automate have business stealing vis-a-vis -vis those who don't automate. So that's, again, we are completely in a Schumpeterian world. It's a Schumpeterian model that you need to talk about automation. The second, so taxing robots is a bad idea because if you tax robots, I prevent firms from innovating, and therefore I prevent them from expanding export market, and therefore I prevent them from increasing employment. So it's totally counterproductive to tax robots. Okay, second idea, taxation is the, is the only instrument to make growth more inclusive. Uh, uh, first, I want to say that I believe very much in taxation. You need taxation to finance education. Uh, you need taxation to finance health. You need taxation to finance good flex security system, good labor, active labor market policy. You need taxation to finance good industrial policy. So I am for taxation and I am for progressive taxation. My model of taxation is very much the Scandinavian model. 
But you have to be careful when you tax that you don't, you shoot yourself in the feet. If you tax a lot innovative firms, that will go against social mobility because I showed you already that innovation goes along with social mobility. Also, those are, that's based on the work I do with uh, Richard Blondel, Richard Griffiths, Antonin Bergeau. Firms that, uh, in, innovative firms, uh, that's the, the wage profile of a, a low educated worker. In, in an innovating firms and a non-innovating, a firm that patents and a firm that don't patent, doesn't patent. You see that the, uh, on average, low educated workers have better uh, uh, wage profile over time uh, uh, in a firm that innovates right, compared with a firm that does not innovate. So if you uh, discourage innovation, so not only you have the creative destruction that makes innovation be a force of social mobility, but also innovating firms tend to create more social mobility for their workers. So uh, uh, discouraging innovation by excessively high tax on uh, capital income, uh, uh, that would be counterproductive. I am to tax capital income, of course, but not excessively. You have to be reasonable in the way you use the tax, uh, the tax instrument. Okay, so uh, uh, you need taxation, but you need also other instruments. You need uh, uh, competition policy, rules to finance political campaigns, fighting lobbying, uh, excessive lobbying, uh, uh, those all those things are as important as taxation as instruments to make growth more inclusive. Okay. Uh, another idea is that protectionism is the way to regain control of value chains. Here is France versus Germany in what I call anti-COVID products. That includes masks, respirators, principe actif, you know the what you do for the you know for the tests. The, in all of those things, France and Germany were about the same in the early 2000s. And you see here are the exports of Germany in those products and the imports by Germany. And you see Germany imports much more than it used to, exports much more than it used to, and now it has a net surplus of 20 billion euros on these what I call anti-COVID products. France stagnated and France has no trade surplus and is doing much worse than Germany. But Germany did not achieve this by putting uh, trade uh, tariff barriers like Trump did. Germany did it by investing and innovating, which France didn't do. France underinvested, um, you know, on the, since 2002, but now it's been better. Uh, 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 France underinvested in innovation and industrial policy. So that's, uh, that's uh, very interesting to show this contrast between France and Germany, uh, where in Germany is entirely due to uh, putting in inventive investment. Okay. Uh, zero or negative growth is the best response to the climate challenge. So here is green and uh, dirty pollution. Of course, now uh, the, the, the green catch up a bit with the dirty patents, okay? The flow of dirty grow, flow of green. And that's uh, over 80 countries. I look in the automotive industry. That's based on work I did with John Von Rinan and Ralph Martin, who are both and Antoine de Chelepret, so all LSE colleagues. Uh, 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 and that was done with them. And, uh, and the interesting thing is that uh, we see that there is, there is some action on green innovation. Uh, it's very interesting on the, to show that this idea that negative growth is the best response. The, the natural experiment is the COVID. When we had the, the lockdown in France, GDP went down by 30%, CO2 emission only by 8%. So it shows that it's not the negative growth that will be the response. The response is the green innovation. And the whole challenge is how to induce firms to innovate green. So one way is the carbon tax. And we, in the work with uh, uh, John, John uh, Ralph Martin and uh, Antoine de Chelepret, we showed the effectiveness of the carbon tax as a way to redirect firms' innovation towards green technologies, but also subsidies to clean R&D is very effective, uh, industrial policy towards green. 
and also in recent work with Ralph Martin, Roland Benabou, and Alexandra Roulet, we show the role of consumers uh, in countries where consumers care about the environment. Competition uh, uh, forces firms to innovate green because if I don't, then uh, Steve will do it. You see what I mean? And I don't want the consumers to go to Steve and lose them to him. So competition combined with uh, having consumers in favor of, of environment uh, is also very effective in directing innovation towards green technology. So you see, you have carbon tax, industrial policy, and consumer civil society, in particular, uh, you know, the, 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 through the competition mechanism. Okay, now the third thing that the book does is to help, uh, you know, think of rethink capitalism. In fact, you know, COVID was a revelator. COVID revealed how broken the social model is uh, in the US. But it also revealed how uh, inefficient the, Europe, the innovation ecosystem is in Europe. Uh, uh, talking about uh, inequality, you see that, for example, the Gini uh, in the US is much higher than in Germany, Sweden, Norway, France, Denmark. Here is the poverty rate much higher in the US than it is in Germany, uh, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and even France. So on inequality and poverty, we do better than, uh, than, uh, than the US, okay? And here is the reaction to COVID. So that's the fraction of people uh, with, uh, with health coverage, with the wrong. You see, in Germany, everybody has access to health. In, uh, that's the uh, people in the US who have access to health. The problem is that the access to health is very much related to unemployment. Many more people became unemployed during the COVID crisis, and some of them lost health insurance or proper health insurance. And you see that the, the number of people without health insurance therefore increased substantially in the US. None of that in, the, in, in Germany. And I could show similarly compare uh, US, UK, US, France, uh, we do better than uh, on insurance, health insurance, we do much better than the US. But I could look also in terms of uh, risk of falling into poverty. Uh, 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 that's the risk into falling into poverty. It remained constant in Germany. It went up in the US with, uh, uh, with the COVID. So in terms of social insurance, uh, uh, we, uh, Europe is better than the US. But on the other hand, the US is better as in, uh, in terms of innovation. Here I look the biotech patents uh, per million inhabitants. That's in the US, much higher than in EU. 27 OECD average of China. You see, they are much better to innovate. And why they are better? Because they span much more. That's the BARDA. We know that the, all the vaccines, the BARDA played a big role in the success of the vaccine campaign in the US. BARDA is Biologic Advanced Research Development Agency. What is this all about? It's the equivalent of the DARPA. DARPA was Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. It was created during the Cold War because you were racing with the Soviet Union in space and in defense. And the basic research had been done, but you had to translate it very quickly into concrete results because you were racing with the Soviet Union. So the, the, the US created the DARPA and the DARPA gave us a lot of innovation, GPS, internet, uh, many things that we use are directly or indirectly the result of investment in the DARPA. And the DARPA is a very nice way. You, the money comes from the government, but then the government names team leaders for three years and they have full freedom to team up public-private and to try many, many projects and, and make them compete. So it's a mixture of top-down and bottom-up, which works very well. When you have a technology, you have the basic research done, but you have an S-curve, you have a problem of going from the, from the, the basic uh, knowledge, the basic invention, to uh, industrial application on large scale quickly. 
And the Barda was the other example, RN Messenger technology. Uh, the basic research had been done. In fact, it was started in the Pasteur Institute in France. And then you have these two wonderful Hungarian and Turkish researchers who uh, really uh, improved this technology. And, uh, uh, but then you had to go from there to massive vaccine uh, production using the RN messenger in less than one year. And that was done thanks to the Barda. The Barda and many firms have a go at that. And they told them the risk, we take the risk. They invested $12 billion in, product, in COVID products. The Europe, uh, if you take the uh, uh, European Investment Bank and uh, European Commission, it's a total of $4 million, $4 billion, three times less than the US. $12 billion in the US, $4 billion in Europe. So the US, they have, and the US, they have a much better ecosystem for innovation. If only for the biotech, they have for basic research, the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Health, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which is sponsors, private uh, uh, sponsors that finance basic research in biotech. All that for only basic research. Then they have the Barda. Then they have the venture capital and private uh, equity much more developed than in Europe. And uh, 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 all that, of course, no mystery, no wonder. Uh, I know the UK did very well. You had the AstraZeneca. You had the vaccine. France, catastrophe. We, are, we were the country of the Pasteur Institute, uh, the, the vaccines were first discovered by Pasteur in France, and France was not capable to produce a vaccine. So uh, 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 we see the problem. So what you would like is to come a capitalism that combines the good side of the American model. You want innovation like in the US, and you want the good side of the European model, inclusive and protective. And uh, uh, so that's what you can, and we explain the book that you can have that. But you can achieve that through the combined action, and that really borrows a lot from Bowles and Carlin on the, the what I call the magic triangle between firms, the market, the state, and civil society. Why do you need civil society in addition to the state and the market? Is because constitutions are, of course, you could get, uh, and that will help you do a lot of things. For example, going back to the Schumpeter's pessimism, Schumpeter thought that the uh, innov first innovators would turn into conglomerates that would prevent subsequent innovation and entry. So you could say, well, there you could have the state that we could competition policy. But the problem is that the state can be bought out by the conglomerates. How do you prevent that? That's where civil society is crucial, is to prevent the collusion or limit the scope of the collusion between incumbent firms and the state. And the civil society is there very important. Of course, you could say, I could put that in a constitution. Separation of power can help me. Montesquieu can help me by having a judiciary. It's true, the judiciary can help. But you see, typically, constitutions are incomplete contracts, and uh, uh, nothing makes sure, uh, guarantees that what the judiciary would say would really be independent and really be enforced. So there you need civil society as a means to ensure the effective implementation of these contracts and to complete the incomplete contract in the South, to really make sure that these contracts are enforced. And uh, so, uh, uh, so the, the, you know, in other words, the civil society takes the constitutional safeguards that you have in the separation of power from theory to practice. Uh, you could constitutionally decide that you have limited power to the executive and that the executive has the, legisl the, the, the legislative and judiciary powers are, as watchdogs, but nothing guarantees that it would be reinforced. And the civil society there is crucial. But you see, this triangle acts on everything. For example, on green innovation, I told you who does the green innovation is the firms. 
but the state has the uh, has instruments. It has the carbon tax and industrial policy. But I told you that civil society also is very important to make sure that the state does it. Huh? And also civil society through name and fame uh, and uh, corporate social responsibility uh, and, the, and the role of consumers can make sure that indeed firms will also innovate in greener technology. You see, in many instances, this triangle not only will help you solve the pessimism of Schumpeter, but also make sure that you achieve more inclusive and greener uh, growth. Okay, And that's the outline of the book, uh, the paradigm. Uh, I, we explained the Schumpeterian paradigm and the empirics, how you measure creative destruction, the takeoff, then you have the technological waves and why they don't create mass unemployment. Then you have the relationship between competition and innovation and uh, competition policy. Then you have what I said about inequality and innovation. Then about you talk and, and uh, how you should deal with inequality. What are the instruments to deal with it and make growth more inclusive? Uh, there I talk about the secular stagnation debate and the various explanations behind it and what should be done about it. Uh, a middle income trap how you overcome the middle income track. Structural change, can you go directly from agriculture to services by passing mass industrialization? That's my, my conversation with Fabrizio Zilibotti, Michael Peters, and Robin Borges were crucial there. And it would be very important if uh, new developing countries could go directly from uh, 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 agriculture to services because we know that mass industrialization is very much polluting. We know that if you exclude transport, services are four times less polluting, four times less CO2 emissions than, uh, than uh, uh, industry. Uh, green innovation, so how you make, how you make, uh, you sustain, uh, how you reconcile growth and the environment and, and uh, the, how the triangle acts there to, uh, to make innovation greener. Then here we look at who are the inventors, their parents, the income of the parents, the education of the parents, uh, uh, why education parents is so important, what can be done to give broader access for people to become inventors and also the articulation between basic and applied research. Here we talk about creative destruction and its effect on health and happiness. We contrast the Danish model where when you lose your employment, there is no negative effect on health. That was my colleague Alexandra Roulet shows, whereas in the US it's Deaton case world where we know that when you lose on, uh, employment, you go into opioids, obesity and suicides, okay? So how you, you can go into the Danish model? Uh, here, I look at financing creative destruction at all stages, from basic research to uh, uh, industrialization. So we talk about uh, foundations, basic research. We talk about uh, venture capital. We talk about institutional investors. And we talk about the DARPA and BARDA. <clears throat> there, it's about globalization, all the things that you know, the, uh, why exporting more induces you to innovate more. So if you, if you have a trade war, uh, uh, you shoot yourself in the feet because you reduce, there will be retaliation by the destination countries, which will then discourage your own innovation. So we, we, we deal with that debate on globalization and innovation. There we uh, look at how the investor state emerged through wars, in particular schooling. You know, uh, uh, Jules Ferry in France is a response to Sedan. Uh, Humboldt in Germany or in Prussia is a response to Napoleon. Uh, uh, so we show how, uh, you know, uh, investor state came as a result of uh, wars being lost and the uh, insurer state, uh, beverage and uh, all the welfare states in various uh, countries uh, came out of the crisis, the crisis generated the emergence of insurer states. And at the end, we deal with the magic triangle between firms, the state and civil society. We explain how it works. I talk about the yellow vest movement in France when we ignoring the civil society 
uh, got back on our face. And uh, well, it's so very important when you reform to take into account, you know, unions and the civil society at large. And uh, there we discussed the future of capitalism in the, in the conclusion. And so that uh, ends my presentation. Thank you very much. Philip, thank you very much. We had a request from the audience for you to slow down, but of course, uh, oh God, then, uh, you would have taken even longer. We have many questions from our listeners. Um, if you have more questions, um, do write them in the Q&A box. I'll try to get a few of them. Um, let me start with one that comes from an, a number of people about... Uh, the balance or the trade-off between intellectual property protection and the lack of competition that might bring about in the future and the tension between creating new innovations and the diffusion of those innovations once they are protected. Yeah. So I think there is always this contradiction. I mean, you, you would like, for example, green technologies or vaccines. You want this trade-off between you, you need to reward the inventors because if you don't, uh, 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 then you will discourage future innovations. You have to reward innovation. Uh, so one way to deal with that <clears throat> beyond competition policy and uh, making sure you, you strike the right balance between giving grants to inventors but not preventing diffusion is <clears throat> Michael Kramer then had a very good idea uh, when it was talking with malaria uh, medicines. He was to say you purchase from inventor using uh, auctions. The auction will determine the private value of an innovation and you will put a, a social markup over it. And that will determine the price at which society as a whole would buy the innovations from the inventor and diffuse them. So you could imagine, social, so, you know, uh, uh, welfare funds, you know, social... Uh, we say uh, wealth funds uh, 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 or, you know, the G20 or whatever, you know, you would have funds, uh, public funds that would buy out, you know, uh, some, some kind of inventions that you would then diffuse. You want them to diffuse to developing countries. You want to diffuse to, and uh, sovereign wealth, the sovereign wealth funds, that was, the, that was the expression I was looking for. So that you could say the state or the community of states uh, could play a role to uh, strike this balance that you have to compensate the inventors, but then to diffuse the invention. And uh, there, there is a role for the community of countries, G20 possibly, or other forums, to, to you see, to be a, br a broker between the inventors and, uh, and then, uh, you know, diffuse the, the, the innovation to broader audience, to, to countries that cannot afford them. Thank you, Philippe. Um, very interesting question from Yusuke Takeda. He's wondering whether the data economy is going to weaken the power of creative destructions because data are non-rival and they lower the sunk cost of R&D activities. What's your sense on that? Uh, well, I, I don't, no, I don't think so. I think, uh, I think it depends, you know, again, if you make, make data accessible. I mean, it, it's true that if, you know, if uh, incumbent firms can keep data for themselves, they can uh, stifle future innovation, but if you make data uh, available, and uh, then you, it's again like making uh, current, you know, information available, and that will encourage future innovation. So again, the competition policy uh, the, uh, of the digital era should deal not only 
with a merger and acquisition that does not stifle future innovation, but also maybe it will, it will deal with a condition to share data after a while so that you don't stifle future innovation. So that, that's, it all depends on how you design the competition and the policy there. Okay, there, there are a number of questions about how do you create an, a state that's good at the type of entrepreneurial activity that fosters creative destruction. Um, Jacob Joseph Malhochki is asking, can the EU ever become such a state? Um, why is the US doing it so well? Is the US be yeah. hampering other countries with their power, preventing them from um, being able to innovate as much as they do? Can you I think a, a big problem, I mean, I think the EU is very much, has been always something, it's true that countries like France may tend to spend too much, so when being French, I don't have full credibility on that. But it's true, we are always on the stingy side. Uh, look at the vaccine. I mean, why did we get delay in the AstraZeneca? Because we wanted to strike the, bet, the best deal possible with AstraZeneca. We wanted to have it as cheap as possible, and that delayed the process. So uh, there's been always an obsession from some European countries, particularly, of thriftiness. You see what I mean? It's good to be thrifty. But if you are too thrifty, you don't have an innovation policy. You see, you need to invest in the long term. Uh, uh, and, and innovation, it's a whole ecosystem from basic research to, uh, uh, to industrial applications. And if you don't invest, you don't get. Uh, uh, France, for example, is, is paying uh, decades of underinvestment in basic research and innovation. And uh, now they understand that because Barda was so successful, there are some attempts with maybe ERA, H-E-R-A, I don't know what it will give, to create the equivalent of a Barda in Europe. But it's no longer due to have this kind of policy. We should have a Europe of projects. So far, Europe was Maastricht Treaty and competition policy. And even the competition policy in Europe, it was very much market-share-based. Ba market share based. We make sure that nobody has to meet a market share. It was never the kind of competition policy that I mentioned, you know, make sure that the merger and acquisition does not stifle future innovations and entry. It was never a dynamic way of doing competition policy. It was always a very static way in terms of market share. Alstom, another example, Alstom Siemens, Uh, competition, uh, competition Commission did many good things, but they opposed the merger between Alton Siemens, saying, well, you know, it has too much of a market share in Europe because all fast trains, the high-speed trains are Alstom or Siemens. But it's a contestable market because the Chinese can do high-speed trains. So if the, if the price is above the limit price, you, you, countries buy from the Chinese. Italian, Italy buys non-high-speed trains, but already from China. So it was obviously a contestable market. So you have to look Again, at the dynamic thing, was the idea, if there is this merger, does it stifle future innovation or not? If it's a contestable market, it doesn't. So you could have a low audit. So I think both, less, we should be less stingy in Europe uh, and more forward-looking, including in the way to consider uh, competition policy. Uh, and we should be much more a Europe of projects. We should create a DARPA energy, a, a, a BARDA. And, and I believe, and I, I, since I'm talking to a UK audience, I am everywhere advocating that the UK should be included. The, the, the UK are very good uh, on, on health, very good on energy, very good on defense, and all these DARPAs that we should create at EU level should include the UK, absolutely. Like the UK should also be part of ERC because they are the best. We having ERC without the UK is shooting ourselves in the feet. Very interesting question from Jose Tapia 
an alumnus in 1998. Um, how can we make sure that innovation and new technologies have a public interest element embodied in them? What's the role of regulation or government oversight for that? I think, uh, you know, for example, in things like health, uh, uh, we, we should make, uh, yeah, innovations, if they are used, you see what I mean? It can lead to two kinds of things. Innovation, people are afraid of them because they're afraid of losing their jobs. And they're afraid that it will make their work uh, more precarious. So it's up to states to create systems that will, will uh, avert these dangers. So for example, Denmark there is a very interesting system because they created the flex security. When you lose your job in, in Denmark, and the, the creative destruction means that very often you will have to change job. You keep your income, the income is maintained and the state provides you with training and helps you find a new job. Then they propose new jobs to you. If you refuse more than two or three, then of course they are okay, the, the subsidy goes down. But they help you. They help you through that. So creative destruction becomes something with human face in Denmark. Uh, uh, I, I mentioned that work by Alexandra Roulet. No negative effect on the health of losing your job in Denmark. So if you can create a system like that, that accommodates creative destruction, that makes that people are not afraid of it, that have a very good training system, very good education system, uh, then you make uh, innovation being a force of qualification and something that boosts people. If you are in a country where you have low education, then innovation means a lot of bad jobs. So you want innovation to, to lead to good jobs. So you have to invest in training, education, uh, flex security to make sure that firms will create good jobs. Voilà. But, uh, and you have to, to make sure that uh, to maximize the good job potential of innovative firms. And that's where the state has a role to play. Okay, um, we're, we're coming towards the end. There's one question from Malcolm McAdam actually challenging you on this point about the Denmark model. Um, he's saying is the lack of a social safety net in the US a causal reason for its higher level of innovation and dynamism than in Europe? Can yeah. too much social security stifle innovation? I don't believe in it. I, I am totally against that view. I don't believe in the or, I believe in the and. By having the flex security system in Denmark, you make people much less fearful of creative destruction. So it favors creative destruction. When you have better education, when you make more people able to become inventors, because you have better schooling, uh, you have more potential inventors, you have less lost Einsteins, to use John Van Rinen's and his co-authors expression. So that's good not only for to spur innovate, to, to boost innovation, but it is also to make it more inclusive. So it's not an or, it's an and. When you have good flex security, good education system, the, when you help the young uh, have more autonomy like they do in Denmark, they have a very good system to give autonomy to the young to choose their lives. Uh, 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 you boost creative destruction and invention as much as you boost. It's like when you ski. If I go with, a, uh, you know, I learned to ski with a good professor. I'm not afraid of the black slopes. But if I don't know how to ski, I'm afraid of the black slopes. I don't take risks because I'm, I'm terrified. So those things, uh, flex sec, uh, you, you know, the universal income for the young, uh, uh, all those things, they help you go on the black sla on the black. Uh, um, on the black slopes, you see what I mean? You, you are ready to take more risk because you are trained. 
uh, when I have ski professors, when they trained me, then I, I was excited to go on the black stuff. But had not me trained, I would of course be terrified. I would not go there. And and that's what you want people. You want people to take more risk because you know that they have a safety net. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure for me, and I'm sure for all the audience to listen to you, Philippe, um, about your insights. Thank you very much, everybody in the audience who joined us today. Thank you for your questions, and I'm very sorry that we haven't gotten to all of them. Um, thanks again, Philippe, thanks. for thanks taking so time and taking part in the event. Um, Philippe Aguillon was talking about his new book, The Power of Creative Distraction. You can find details about the book on the LSE Public Events website. And you can also find more events in the future there for today. I'd like to say goodbye. Thanks for joining and have a good day. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you so much for organizing this.